I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And I'm really excited to bring back one of um, my favorite people. Uh, she's a genealogist and great researcher, Corey Howard. Can you say hello? Hi. Thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks for having me again. If you haven't heard Corey's first interview, we did, uh, she's done some research on Emmeline Free and, and now she's been researching, uh, Wilford Woodruff's wives. And since we have just been talking about the manifesto, I thought this would be a good time to talk about some of these women. Today we're going to talk about one of the wives. Uh, her name is Phoebe Whittemore Carter. And, uh, of course, Corey is fantastic. She does a lot of research. And she's helped a lot of people since that first episode you did to do a lot of their genealogy. I get a lot of messages from people saying how great you are. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Thanks to them. <laughs> so really quick, Corey, can you just answer a question about uh, the church history library and the genealogy library? Can you tell us the difference between those and how those sort of work for people that are interested in doing that themselves? Sure. Um, the genealogy library is geared towards a person doing their own family history. Um, they have a lot of the, they have a wide variety of the paid subscription sites like Ancestry, Fold3, uh, Find My Past, uh, all kinds of heritage uh, subscriptions where people can look up documents that have been digitized. They also have all the traditional microfilms on the readers with the rolls. Um, so you can look at old church records from England or old LDS church records, um, some wills and deeds and things like that that will give you clues to your ancestors' lives. So it's a more personal, I mean, for the average person, it's more personal. And um, there's, you know, you can find biographies submitted by families, things like that. At the church history library, a lot of what's available there are things that were previously kept for the church historian. Um, these are documents and histories and photos and all kinds of, you know, relevant material to church history. So if your, your ancestor came across the plane and anybody kept a journal, that would, that would be at the church history library. Or if you wanted to research a famous person or, you know, Mormon famous, someone that was part of, you know, a history event in your in your family past or something that just interested you. There would be letters and journals. Um, one thing I did at the Church History Library was a little bit of research on the um, the the Social Hall Theater when Brigham Young did that. And they had he called people to be actors and actresses, but in the Church History Library, they had playbills and receipts. Um, that showed how much they paid different, some of the actors and actresses got paid or reimbursed for things. And so they'd have a detail of that and what parts they played and, um, so things like, you know. And tell us how it works. Can you just like show up and bring in a name? Um, can anyone go? Tell everyone any, how that works. Okay. Anybody can go to either place. Um, the, at the church history library, you can go and you, they have access computers in the lobby or just beyond the lobby. And you would look up your subject matter and get a call number and you have to fill out a slip. It's different than the Family History Library in that at the Family History Library, most of it is self-service. There are people there to help you if you need help, but it's self-service. At the Church History Library, you... You have the call number and an attendant or a uh, docent or archivist will go retrieve the material for you. And if it's in the, if it's a book in the research area, in the main area, you can just, you know, you can use it there. If it's a document or an artifact, there's a special room where you have to go just as with, um, many archives, you have to lock all your personal belongings, um, no, no recording devices and things like that. No, 
pens, nothing of your own goes in that room, then someone will give you the film or the disc, or sometimes it's a folder with actual photographs or, you know, or the playbills, like I mentioned before. And depending on the age of the paper, you might be required to wear gloves. There are s some documents that um, are restricted. And depending on your reasons for wanting to see it, um, you may or may not be permitted to see it. Sometimes you might have to submit a request that might take quite a bit of time, as in weeks or a couple months, to get an answer about whether you can look at a particular document. Um, quite a bit of it is available, like uh, a lot of Brigham Young's papers are available to general research. but And there's books, if you need books that, that you would mm -hmm. like to borrow that you don't have. It's yeah, fantastic. Can, yeah, they have the whole women's exponent or exponent. I never know how to say that. Anyway, <laughs> the women's ex the exponent. But they have um, copies of that. So I used that once because an ancestor of mine submitted material. And so I wanted to see if there were other things, you know. And so you can sit and read that at your own leisure. And you, you know, can, just, um, I think that you can find out what they have online. They yes, have a, they do have a searchable database. Um, you can key in search terms, a person's name or an event, and it'll, ta you know, it'll pull up results. That's a, you know, that's an easy way to find things and it's pretty thorough. And then you can prep yourself for when you go there, what's more important, what you want to see first. Yeah, and uh, Corey is also a good resource if you have questions. She's, I mean, are you okay that I yeah. <laughs> am volunteering you again? Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, yeah, she's yeah. she's great. So she's been doing this research project on uh, the wives of Wilford Woodruff. So let's let's get into it. Let's talk about Phoebe. Do you want to bring us in with her life? Sure. Phoebe was uh, born in Maine in a town called Scarborough. She was the sixth child of eleven. Um, her parents, in her own history, she doesn't say too awfully much. She's, she's, her parents were Sarah Fabian and Ezra Carter. She pretty much says to the effect that she came from Pilgrim Stock <laughs> and that they were well-respected names. But she, I <laughs> wasn't able to even see what her father did for a living or anything like that. Um, from the timing of things, the, the War of 1812 would have been a big influence on just the way she saw things, I think, anyway. Um, the town of Scarborough, they had um, a lot of traffic with the Revolutionary War. Um, it was later to become Maine. Actually, at that time, it wasn't Maine. It, they divided themselves from, and, from Massachusetts. But there were militia and just basically, you know, it was kind of political unrest, and she wrote She wrote about her father. My father was of English descent, coming to America at about the close of the 17th century. My mother, Sarah Fabian, was also of England, and the third generation from England. The name of Fabian is ancient and of a noble family, my father's family also, much of the old Puritan stamp. And that's really all I found about her, her parentage. From the Fabians, yeah. Yeah. So, um... You know, and, and she, I don't think she really kept a journal. <laughs> There's, uh, a lot of the stuff that we find, um, is because it's attached to her husband, which isn't that unusual, but it can be frustrating. Yeah. Did you, I found a, a bio of, or an autobiography of her, but it's pretty short. Yeah. It's, that's, yeah, that's the one that gets used for everything. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> it seems like it. Um, absolutely certain they have gold in there about something I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> but so she, there's not, I don't know a whole lot about her young life, but what they, what I've read is that she, the pretty standard story was that when she converted to Mormonism, her family was really upset. This was 1834 and she was the only one in her family. She wasn't married to anybody and she's 27 years old and she's just going to leave. She uh, left her family and moved to Kirtland, and she promised her mother that if she ever found Mormonism to be untrue, that she would come home. So off she went to Kirtland, and when she got there, she worked as a school teacher, as a school teacher, 
and she was she was really intent on learning from Joseph Smith and I think she was really a religious person. I don't know um, if she was religious before, but I think she was kind of a very devout person. And these are the, she was there teaching and somehow she met Wilford Woodruff. She, they were married three months after they met, which probably wasn't that short of a, of a courtship. She had already received her patriarchal blessing before, before Wilford Woodruff did. And, and she received it from Joseph Smith Sr., right? Who would have been the church's patriarch at the time? Yes. It's, um, you know, it's interesting because all these people, the names, Joseph Smith Sr. and Hiram Smith, they're all kind of like Mormon royalty. And so you'll read somebody's family history and they were, they were blessed by these, well, he was the patriarch. So of course they were blessed by Joseph Smith Sr. So, but yes, she was. And, um, she was, she and Wildreth were sub- Wilford were supposed to be married by Joseph Smith Jr. But when the day came, he, Joseph Smith wasn't available and she said it was because he had to leave home and hide due, because of ungodly men. So. I wonder, I wonder what month that was. That, that would have been in 37? Yeah, in 37. And they were married, um, in March. No, no. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Because in yep. March, you know, in March 1837 is when they're having the Kirtland banking fiasco. The Happy. Kirtland what fiasco? The Safety Society. Oh. Uh, they're printing money and, and all of that's oh. going off. So I wonder oh. if that had anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, she, it would have been, well, it would have been in March. Because, okay, he, they met in January. And they married... Oh, April. April 13th, they were married. I was thinking it was three months. I guess it's a little over that. Yeah, in, in March of, March 24th, 1837, uh, the Bank of Georgia, V. Smith, Whitney, and Rigdon, Vincent Nye, and Ira Bond entered into a recognizance of special bail on behalf of Smith, Whitney, and Rigdon, $8,000 they bring to the bank. And all of that whole banking stuff is going down that, that oh. spring. Yeah. So, so the people after wanting their money was probably who the ungodly men were. Yes. <laughs> so right after they got married, within a month, they left for a mission. And some of these, Wilfred went on a lot of missions. And some of these, he felt called to go, so he went. They weren't all like he was sitting home and he got an order from another apostle to go on a mission. Once or twice, at least, he decided he should go on a mission. But she went with him. And they went to the Fox Islands, which is off. It's it's not far from where her parents lived, and it's now known as North Haven or Vinyl Haven, Maine. There, it's a group of little islands, and it was just a farming, fishing community. And they part of the time she would spend with her parents, and part of the time she would spend with Wilford and some of the other missionaries. And it was while they were on this mission that their first child was born. So. While they're on that mission is when um, they hear about the extermination order in Missouri, and they they need to go back. They need to go back to be with the saints, so they pack up and leave. And so their baby's really tiny, and Phoebe, on the way back, becomes really, really sick. And this is um, one of the f- a first in multiple dramatic ex- uh, spiritual experiences that Phoebe would talk about through her whole life. She was really, really sick. They called it a brain fever. And I don't know what that is. There's possible, when you look up brain fever, they say it's possibly encephalitis, meningitis, or cerebritis, which is inflammation of the cerebrum. But I don't know that there's any way to tell what particular version she had. But um, Wilford was really scared and thought she was going to die. And their baby was also really sick. So he gave her a blessing. And in his journal, he wrote that he rebuked the power of death. And Phoebe would talk about it later, saying that while that she that her spirit left her body. And while she was outside of her body, she could see Wilford and 
other sisters, not her sisters, but sisters at church, weeping and sorrowful because they all thought she was going to die. She said two personages entered the room and told her she had the choice of going on to the spirit world or staying on earth. The choice to remain on earth hinged upon her commitment to stand by her husband as they passed through, quote, all the cares, trials, tribulations, and afflictions they would suffer for the gospel's sake. She said, yes, I will do it, in her version, and her spirit re-entered her body. Three days later, she was able to rise, dress herself, and walk to the wagon. Wow. Yep. So, so they made it back to Nauvoo, and by now it's 1839, um, and Nauvoo isn't a city at this point. It's still a swamp. So they go to, they try to take shelter in a deserted barracks, a deserted army barracks in Fort Des Moines, Iowa, which is uh, Montrose, really. So it's right across the Mississippi River from what would become Nauvoo. And right after that, Wilford is called to serve another mission. So she's home and with this baby, and he leaves. Then eight months later, she has another baby. So is he on the <laughs> – great, that's great timing. Was was he on the mission when she had the baby then? Yes. Yep. He was away on his mission. And so her second child, their first son, Wilfred, was born. And she's still living in these deserted barracks. So this is, you know, the winter time by now. And the the new baby, the little boy is four months old. And the first child dies. And she's alone. This is March. But she's really a stalwart lady. She expressed her continuing faith and devotion for Wilford in a letter that she sent to him. She said, quote, You are always present with me when I go before the throne of grace. And when I'm asking for protection and blessings upon myself and children, I claim the same for my dear companion who has gone far from me, even to foreign nation, to preach the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in reading about her, I think this is part of how she and, I think she and Wilford were well matched this way. They both were really fervent in their belief in the, in the new, you know, in the, in the new gospel and the restored church. It just seemed to be something they really shared. So uh, eventually Wilford returns and by now there are some homes, cabins in built in Nauvoo. And they they buy one of those and took all of their stuff. I don't I guess they had some things because they talk about ferrying their belongings across the river. Um and by now they've been married six years and this is the first time that they live together under their own roof and without another family or in-laws. So their whole like first few years of marriage is really this sort of transitory state. They're together and they're not. And this is this would be the narrative of a lot of pioneer women, especially women that would go on to to take, you know, sister wives onto the family. That's true. Yep, it was um and I think actually Phoebe did better in in the contact with her husband than a lot of sister wives did. Um, because she, she still continued to accompany him on missions, which I, um, not even all of Wilford's wives got as much time as she did. She was, she was pretty much a first wife and exercised that right. So they started to build, Wilford started to build a nicer house in Nauvoo than the cabin, nice brick house. But, and they ended up only really living there off and on for a hundred days. Um, during the time in Nauvoo was another, uh, spiritual witnessing kind of time for Phoebe. She talked about the miracles that she saw because all these men that were working in the swamps and pulling out logs and building, they, they, all, they would get sick because they're in this horrible environment and overextending themselves. And I'm sure they're not eating well, but so they got sick. And so, a large portion of the men in town were bedridden. And then one day she testified that Joseph Smith got himself out of sick bed and went from house to house 
healing and commanding men to rise up and be well. Um, she would always, she had a very strong testimony of Joseph Smith. She would always just be loyal to his bringing, bringing the restored church. She said that he, he quote, died a martyr for truth. But so she, and she, and she said that Wilford accompanied him as they were healing people. So it just was a thread that they both shared. They would have these really strong spiritual experiences that, that cemented how they felt. Yeah, I have a quote from her. She says, Of my husband, I can truly say I have found with him a worthy man with scarcely his superior, his superior on earth. He has built up a branch of the church wherever he has labored. He has been faithful to God and his family every day of his life. My respect for him has increased with our years, and my desire for an eternal union with him will be the last wish of my mortal life. Yeah. Very strong, and I, that just very strong feelings that way. Um, and that's part of what makes me curious about her younger years, too, is, um, you know, you just, I'm just curious how, what, you know, how her spiritual self was formed. You know, was this something she grew up with, or was it more something she hadn't experienced, and that's why she felt it so strongly? So maybe we'll find out. <laughs> so um while they're in wood while they were in Nauvoo, they were sealed and Phoebe received her endowments from Emma Smith and Mary Fielding Smith. And right after that, Phoebe and Woodruff head out on another mission. They're going and this time they went to Europe and the British Isles. So but at this point they have three three living children. Wilfred is five years old, and they left him behind in Nauvoo, and I'm not sure who with. Because it specified that I was able to read that they left their two-year-old daughter, Phoebe Amelia, with Phoebe, with the older Phoebe's sister. And they took the baby girl, Susan Amelia, with them on their mission. While they were in England, they, they employed a convert to be their housekeeper. And that was Mary Ann Jackson. And she worked for them while they were there. And came back with them on their return. They didn't all return together. The Woodruffs, everybody got on the boat at first. And by now there's Wilford and Phoebe, Susan Amelia that they took with them. And they had another son while they were on that mission. And Marianne Jackson now. So they get on the boat. And the boat goes out a little ways or the ship. And I think they said like 20 days. Even that he was on this, I don't know how fast the ship was going, but they, Wilford performed a marriage on the ship to, to a few people and they had a small marriage celebration. And then a smaller boat took Wilford back because this ship there on the Liverpool, uh, that Phoebe, Marianne and the children would take would, would arrive in New Orleans. And Wilf Wilford was going to take another ship and go in uh, by way of New York. And this happened to be, I don't know if it meant, if it was part of why things were handled this way, but this, this particular voyage of this ship that Phoebe was on was the last one for a while because immigration was cut off because the saints were clearing out of Nauvoo. And so they said, you know, we can't have any more immigrants coming right now. We're not in a position to handle them. And so they cut off the immigration for a little while. So when they eventually, they all ended up back in Nauvoo or winter quarters. They were in Nauvoo for a minute. And this is where it gets fuzzy because they're there for a little while. And maybe that's where Wilford marries Marianne Jackson. But there's also a documentation of them being sealed in winter quarters. So it wouldn't have, you know, it, it's, it's hard to say. Does she claim it later on? The marriage or when? Uh -huh. Yeah, does she say that it happened in, in Nauvoo? Or... Um, because I know that they were having those sealings done, and it's possible that they resealed her. Yeah, um, she. I didn't find anything that she directly said. Her, her record is mostly the record of her son. So her son, James Jackson Woodruff, he wrote 
about his mother in, you know, definitely in the third person and very storytelling form, not a lot of dates. The whole Marianne Jackson and Wilfred Woodruff, uh, relationship was, there's a lot of things that descendants just didn't talk about. It wasn't a horrible, like, you know, I don't want to, it wasn't scandalous, but, um, it just, there's, when I was reading and I'll, I have to read more, it, it was kind of glossed over, and so dates weren't didn't figure in. Because the other part that figures into this sealing thing is if they were sealed in Nauvoo, then it would have just been um, Phoebe and Marianne Jackson there. If they if it's the sealing that took place in Winter Quarters, and the sealing in Winter Quarters might have been a resealing, then that's the one with Marianne, Jack- Marianne Jackson and two other younger women. Um, in the that were sealed in winter quarters, and that is uh, Carolyn Barton and Sarah Brown. So I don't know if that might be why they didn't get real detailed about the the sealing, but they did mention like in Wilfred Woodruff's journal, which he kept a really good journal, except that there was a lot of abbreviations and almost code. So the at the time of that sealing, the reason they're sure it was a wedding is because he drew a picture that involved some keys, and it was a symbol for a marriage ceremony. And so they've and they had the names of those women all together. So that's that's part of how they're verifying that was when the marriage took place. Okay, so so how does that start to affect Phoebe's relationship? You know, I think, I don't know exactly. I didn't find anything written. I think she was fairly confident in her position. She was his partner as far as on missions because then, because, and I think she was, Marianne Jackson worked for them. So I'm sure Phoebe had pretty much established her position as, you know, matriarch in that family. Yeah, I'm reading this quote from her, and this this backs it up. She said, It will be expected that I should say something on polygamy. I have this to say. When the principle of plural marriage was first taught, I thought it was the most wicked thing I ever heard of. Consequently, I opposed it to the best of my ability until I became sick and wretched. As soon, however, as I became convinced that it originated as a revelation from God through Joseph, knowing him to be a prophet, I wrestled with my Heavenly Father in fervent prayer to be guided a right of all the important moments in life, the answer came. Peace was given to my mind. I knew it was the will of God. And from time to time, the present, I have sought to faithfully honor the patriarchal law. So it sounds like, you know, when she got really sick, she saw that as a curse for for uh, not accepting polygamy? Yeah, or or she saw it as just that maybe it was taking all of her time what she was thinking about. You know, you know how you stress and stress and stress over something? And you yeah. make yourself sick. It could have been something like that. And then she read that as, you know, maybe that put her to where she decided to pray. And it, there's always, there's a couple ways to look at that. She might have been, you know, tired and weak at that point. But then sometimes people will feel that now they've been humbled and that they're more receptive to hearing their answer. And when and you that, feel tired and weak, it would be really nice to have a nice housemaid take up mm-hmm. some of the work. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I, I think with her mindset and being, uh, you know, a believer in and having this other experience she had, she, she, I, I kind of, I'm sure that she felt certain of whatever witness she had. You know, I, I don't know. She doesn't say what it was. But before that, it's because it's true. Before that, she had not she had not approved polygamy. She had even signed a statement in the Nauvoo Times and Seasons saying that there was no other kind of marriage in the Mormon church than monogamy, which the statement wasn't true at the time. I don't know if Phoebe knew it or not, because two of the other women that signed that statement were Emma Smith, and Eliza R. Snow, who had been married to Joseph Smith, Eliza had at that point, for several months. Some of the women on that list knew it wasn't true, but I don't know about Phoebe. Interesting. So they make it back to winter quarters in uh, the winter of 1846. And everybody 
if you've had kind of a little bit of Mormon history, you hear about this. There's a rough time in winter quarters, and it was really rough for the Woodruffs also. Um, when he was out chopping wood uh, to try to build shelters, a log fell on Wilford, and he was seriously injured. Um, one of their babies died. Uh, this, the son that had been born in England. Um, and then she, Phoebe also gave birth to another son three weeks after that son died. And the baby dies shortly after being born. So she's got a bedridden husband. Two sons have died. And she's, you know, she can't be in great shape herself having had this premature early birth. So by now she's had seven children with three of them. Uh, still alive. And as soon as Wilford gets better, he's part of Brigham Young's first wagon company headed west. Anyway, so no, Phoebe did not go. Phoebe didn't go with Wilford. She stayed behind. And at this point, also, Marianne Jackson doesn't stay with Phoebe. She leaves in the second wagon company behind Wilford. According to Phoebe, Wilford asked her before he left what would make her happy. And she said she wanted to go to the Utah Valley. Or, you know, it wasn't Utah Valley then. She wanted to go with the saints. And he told her something to the effect that she didn't know what she was asking for. But she went in the second company in the same wagon with Wilford's father. So that leaves Phoebe in Nauvoo. Wilford headed to Utah and Mary Ann Jackson in another train behind that. So I think six six months later or so, Wilford is headed back to to Winter Quarters, and he passes Mary Ann Jackson's wagon on the way, sees her for a few days, and keeps on heading to Winter Quarters to reunite with Phoebe. And three days before he makes it there, Phoebe gives birth to a daughter. And her name was Shua. So while Shua is still a little baby, she's nine months old, the Woodruffs pick up and head to the eastern states on another mission. And the baby died on the way there. So when you say the Woodruffs picked up, is he taking all of his wives in tow now? Or no. was Phoebe the only no. one? Phoebe's the only one because Marianne is on her way now with, with, Woodruff's fa- with Wilford's father, Afik on the way to Utah. She, Marianne Jackson went like the train behind Wilford. Wilford gets to Utah, builds a couple cabins, and turns around and comes back and passes Marianne going the other direction. He sees Marianne for a few days, and his father-in-law blesses a baby that Marianne has and keeps going to winter quarters. Then he reunites with Phoebe. Wilford, Phoebe, and their little baby head for the eastern states on a mission. And the nine-month-old baby died on the way to the eastern states. So, again, on this mission, they're close to Phoebe's family. And this is the period of time where her family comes to, some of the members of her family that are still out there, come to be baptized and converted to the LDS church. And Woodruff, I mean, Wilford, (laughs) Wilford baptizes Phoebe's father. But Phoebe is the one that walks her father to and from the water as he's being baptized. Interesting. I like that. Yeah, it was, it's interesting that she was, I'm sure it was a very spiritual experience for her. She's been very involved in all of this. And here her parents were so worried about her. And, and she's found, she's found this new gospel that for her is, is the fulfillment of so much. Um, in some of this, uh, time that she's, she's very involved with the, um, with a lot of the doctrine because uh, this is the new church. And so a lot of new doctrine is coming and learning it is all very, you know, it's all such new stuff. She would talk about Joseph Smith, um, teaching, the doctrine of sealings and, um, and she called it, um, oh, she, she was, what was initially an issue with the, 
with the ceilings was she didn't know how a spirit could be baptized, but she called the whole um, baptism for the dead strong meat and that it was one of the strange doctrines. That's her words <laughs> that, that Joseph had brought brought that season. So um, this is back in Nauvoo when she was receiving instruction directly from Joseph Smith. And so, but I mentioned the ceilings because this would become very important to Phoebe and Wilford as you go through their story, losing all these babies. Um, and some of them, one died before they were married and before they were sealed, I mean. And then some of them died after they'd been born in the covenant. So Phoebe and Wilford participated in several different aspects of the sealing law, which was all very new. Um, and I'm sure seemed kind of miraculous to her. So while they're in Maine, they gather together about a hundred converts as they're finishing their mission. And these hundred converts are going to come home with them to Deseret. And as they travel, another 125 people join their group and they ended up arriving in Salt Lake in 1850. And then that's, I think that's when she stays. <laughs> the ca Wilford had, had built some cabins when he f had gone alone. And while they were gone in the eastern states, Marianne Jackson had lived in one. But by the time they make it back to Salt Lake, um, Wilford and Marianne's marriage, his ceiling has already been dissolved. And it was done by letters. Really? So she was unhappy from the beginning? Yeah, but by now you got to understand too. It's been five years. Oh yeah, she that's ha true. She she meets, she marries him. She leaves England. She comes here, and she wants to follow him there. And she has a baby. He blesses the baby, almost like passing ships in the night, and then goes back to Phoebe. And Marianne goes and is loyal. Stays um, under the in the family group with Afik, but towards the end here, as, as Wilford is coming back towards Deseret mail sent to him from, from Marianne as just recording that the, the dates of the mail being exchanged is all I could find, not the actual contents of the letter. And then Wilford sends a letter back that makes it to, Utah before he does and in the, and to his father and it says that the marriage has been dissolved. So I think the letter that Marianne sent might have been requesting that they be divorced. So she was basically neglected. So from her perspective, I mean, she's living with her father-in-law who is no husband. Mm -hmm. That's no. not a replacement for a husband. No. And, um, and she's got a little boy and she's a, re she's a relatively young woman. She's doesn't, you know, and she's been five years alone and, you know, it's, it's no fun and it's not, it's really, it's not a life, honestly. And, and, and I'm sure you don't know back then, you didn't know how long a mission would last. You didn't know if, if they were going to come home in a year, two years, you know, you were up in the air if you were, uh, you know a spouse of a missionary that was gone. I will say to Woodruff's credit, I mean, you know, I think Phoebe does describe him accurately where he went. He built things. And for him to have the forethought to build cabins for his family puts his wives in a, in a lot better position than many people that arrived in the Salt Lake Valley. So that, that is one thing to get some insight into how he did things. He was a busy man, but we do know he was, he was a planner and he was a plotter and he thought of things and tried to put those into action. Yeah, I think, no, I really do think he, he tried to be a honorable, responsible person. I don't know that he had a lot of empathy or understood. I mean, it, there's no real, and I don't even, I think he had some empathy, some other things relating to Marianne that come up later. Um, sometimes, sometimes not. But I, I just don't think, I, you know, maybe, maybe he was sympathetic and she asked for a divorce and he said, you know, okay, if that's what you want, you know, maybe he understood and maybe that's why he granted the divorce because he continued to be friendly with her. It was not, um, there was no animus and they, you know, he would end up uh, maintaining contact 
worked with her throughout her life and, and was an active figure in raising his son. So interesting. Well, I, and we're going to cover, um, Marianne's life too, right? Yes. Yes. The, she's, she's probably next. Well, I mean, going in order. Okay. So when Wilford and Phoebe arrive in Utah and they've got the cabins that Wilford built when he was there before, he took the two cabins and he had his family living in those while they were building Adobe homes. And two of these cabins would be moved downtown eventually and be used to build one big home for Phoebe. But for a long time, and by now, um, Wilford has a few wives because once he makes it into the Utah Valley, he adds, he, he's sealed to a few more women. So at one time he had four generations under one roof. He'd have his father, Wilford, and wives, and one of their grandchildren was in the house. This is in the 1860s. So then by 1870s, more the wives ended up with different homes. He would, he took and sent, he built different places for different wives. It, by 18, like in 1871, he bought a ranch, and that's where he moved his wife Sarah, and their children through Sarah went there, and he sent his wife Sarah Delight and her children to a farm um, in 1875, and through this, he was still helping support Marianne Jackson some. She had some, she ended up needing some help, and then... He had built, his father had a house, and a few of these houses are still standing on, on 5th, see now I should know, this is right across from where I go to church. It's on 15th South and 5th East, I think. There's, if you get, go down that street, Afix House is still there, and they all have Utah historical markers on them. So Afix House is there, and then one of the Wilford Woodruff homes is next, and they're pretty kind of, fancier looking houses with some of the gingerbread trim and stuff on them. Then a couple doors down is the old, is the farmhouse. And that's also a historical marker preserved home. But Phoebe gets the house downtown. Phoebe, and it's a big house. Um, he's remodeled it and it ends up after Phoebe's done with it, becoming a hotel just to kind of give an idea of how big it was. And this is by like the 1870s. And this is where, According to Thomas Alexander, who wrote who wrote a biography, a history of oh Thomas Alexander, who wrote Things in Heaven and Earth, in the 1870s is when Phoebe and Wilford began to kind of lead separate lives. They were still loyal to each other and still um, they were still living there together, but they were on different tracks. This is also when Phoebe's activism, or or maybe not activism, this is when Phoebe's other activities and social involvement really picks up. She's, she's already, she had already been pretty active in Relief Society and she starts organizing, fundraising for lots of things. Um, there's a quilt that's called the 14th Ward Quilt, which was kind of famous that she organized to raise, I mean, money through a raffle. And all of the women, they were all pioneer wives. And I think Phoebe made a square and Sarah Delight Stocking Woodruff made a square. And they raffled this off. And they raised, they were raising money for the Perpetual Immigration Fund. And, and yeah, I think this points to this sort of hierarchy in polygamy. It wasn't always this way, but the first wives sort of asserted their status by getting their first pick of the home. And, you know, all of these things while the husband was off doing his church duty and spending time with other wives. So it's sort of a compensation. And to Phoebe's credit, she fills her time with enriching activities for herself. Yes, she she continue, she contributes to society and Mormonism in whatever way she can. Part of this time in the 1870s, there was kind of a, this is during women's suffrage, so there were there were conferences all over or conventions where women would speak about, you know, women's rights and on the pro and the cons and, and they'd have different conferences depending on the perspective. And sometimes there were some right in Salt Lake, which of course were very Mormon centric. 
and a lot of the names that we know from Mormon women's suffrage, Emmeline Wells, and you know Phoebe was one of the speakers. But she would also go to other places and and defend because there was legislation going on to outlaw polygamy, and it was you know. And so, as having been someone who thought the polygamy was so heinous, now she's on a talk circuit, a speaking circuit to fight the the Craig or Cullum bills, which were the anti-polygamy laws, and they would speak against. They would speak against the legislation, but defend Mormon women because one of the, you know, the the political tropes out there that they would talk about Mormon women being puppets for their husbands and this part of why they didn't want to give women the vote um, because those Mormon women would just vote along with their husbands and would have a bunch of immorality. So, so she she testified before Congress and to to defend Salt Lake. Then also, what becomes during this time is she's put on the board in 1880 or early 1880. They start the women, the Relief Society, feel the need that they should have a hospital. They should organize and. And take care of some people. And they had, what they did was they bought a building, they raised the funds, and they bought a building that a Catholic group of women had, were vacating because they had had a hospital there, but they needed a bigger hospital. They bought, they saved up the money and they, they bought the, and started the Deseret Hospital in 1882. And from a book called Gendering the Fair, Histories of Women and Gender at the World Fairs, there's a quote that says, Perhaps the best example of Utah women's efforts toward reform was the Salt Lake Deseret Hospital, founded in 1882 as an institution where the sick and afflicted can receive equal care and attention, regardless of race or denomination. The hospital was first truly significant charitable the hospital was the first truly significant charitable project administered almost entirely by Utah women. Most of the financial support came from the Relief Society and the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association, which allowed the intersections of women's religious and public welfare work. Yeah, um, it's it was it's an it really is a famous institution in Utah history. Yes, there and you know. Relief Society raised a lot of money for a lot of things, and they managed the money better, from what I've read, <laughs> in a lot of these efforts. Yeah, they started um, all of these programs that the church later co-opted. Mm-hmm. They, um, the building that they originally bought, they, they got big enough that they moved it. I mean, they got it, but the first building was vacated when the Sisters of the Holy Cross moved their hospital to larger quarters. Then in 1884... Deseret Hospital moved to a larger building that would have been able to accommodate 40 to 50 patients, though it seldom had more than 16 at a time. They did run into some problems at the Deseret Hospital with um, people thought that it meant it was free. And they, would, they didn't even make an effort. To, they didn't. I, I imagine they had some sort of pay what you could situation. <laughs> but a lot of people just figured it was free and... It was eventually closed. Um, all right. So the funding was always a problem for the hospital. This is, I'm going to read from Women of Covenant, the story of Relief Society by Jill Durr. Well, I guess there's a couple of people, but Jill Durr is the name I always see associated with it. Yeah, I'll funding, link to that book as well. Mm-hmm. Funding was always a problem for the hospital, and a general misunderstanding that care was provided free of cost created ill will among saints unwilling to pay. Subscriptions from wards and stakes and pleas for donations, generously heated at first, did not keep up with costs, and the hospital ceased operation in the early 1890s. Also, but also during this time, for Phoebe, she was busy with the the Deseret, Deseret Agricultural and Manufacturing Society. And this came out of, it started before Phoebe's involvement, but it came out of Brigham Young's desire that this the Mormons not buy Gentile goods because they were costing, I mean, on the one hand, they were costing so much if they had to ship them. 
And so, and plus there was that whole idea of why give them our money. So, um, there was a, a lot of focus on increasing the natural resources. And Phoebe ended up on this board. And they would do things, they had some, there was some government tie-in where there would be some, um, there was like seed sharing and uh, land appropriation, things that were dedicated for certain crops. They would have, they would try out new things. They 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 tried a couple things to make sugar. Um, they ended up with uh, doing a really good job making molasses for a little while. <laughs> but they would then organize during Phoebe's time frame. They organized uh, a fair that would run the same time as the general conference. And it would run for a couple months, really. But they would sell everything. And and suppose uh, what I read was that Eliza R. Snow was worried that they would that it would not work out, that it wouldn't make enough money, and that ended up that they did very well. It was they promoted local industry and what would end up being eventually the government would end up assigning this board would become the the Utah State Fair board. Then um so in this November of eighteen eighty five Wilford is kind of, at this point, he's dodging prosecution and traveling different places because this is during the time when they're, the cohabitation prosecutions are going on. But they, he came back to Salt Lake for a meeting with some of the apostles. They had called him back, said they had to take care of something. And during his time home for this, he came home and found that Phoebe had fallen. And she wasn't well at all. She had suffered a serious head injury. And he gave her a blessing and performed all the necessary um, ordinances or anointing for her death. And she died the night that he, he did all that. She yeah, that's was, a really he, sad story. Yeah. Yeah. She Because he was in hiding. So he comes mm-hmm. out of hiding to be with her. Yeah, well, he came out he came out of hiding. I'm sure he wanted to see her, but he came out of hiding because they were calling a meeting. And so he didn't really come out of hiding. He came to town for a meeting. And then she happens this this happens to her while he's there and then when they arrange her funeral, he doesn't get to attend the funeral because the the government agents, they know he, that his wife has died. It's in the newspaper. The funeral service is announced um, that it'll be in the 14th Ward and what time. It's commencing at 1 o'clock. And so he knows that they're going to look for him there. And he was pretty bitter about it that he, he stated that in his journal that because of the persecutions of the government against the church, he was unable to be with his wife as, you know, at her funeral. And... He um he said he said persecution is raging against the Latter Day Saints. I am perfectly willing for my wife to lie down and go to sleep and be freed from any of the persecution from the wicked. I hope that I may prove true and faithful unto the end, that I may meet with her and our friends in the celestial kingdom of God. But then for the funeral, um, he had to hide in the church historian's office, and it, there was a window there that he could watch out the window as the funeral procession went by, and that's how he participated in her funeral, because otherwise they would have arrested him. And he wrote a poem after she died in her memory, and it said, he said, Sleep on, dear Phoebe, but ere long from this, the conquered tomb shall yield its captive prey. And with thy husband, children, friends, and prophets and apostles, Thou shalt reign in bliss as wife, queen, mother, and saint to an eternal day. And then... That's beautiful. Yeah, he, I mean, I really do think they loved each other. You know, I, I don't... I, I, It's one of those things about polygamy where you can read different wives' stories and one wife will make their husband look really decent. <laughs> you know? So is this foreshadowing for what's coming? Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's some of the when you look at, at the story from some of the other wives' perspectives, he they weren't such good matches and things didn't go so well. 
But these right. two chose each other, and of course, they they stuck it out through the whole period of this church formation, and so they really probably saw themselves as one of the spiritual power couples, and everything I, else I, was just a task to add on to it, including wives. I think so. I think, um, well, because going back to that first experience where she promised to stay with him through thick and thin and through, and this was the exchange in her out-of-body experience for her returning to Earth was that she would stick with him through through all of it. And that might have been why she had such a struggle with polygamy because she really felt that committed and I'm sure this is pretty common among, you know, why, and this is a, you know, the early restoration is this really dynamic time. I mean, I, I there's times where you don't know that history is being made, but I think a lot of these people felt very dynamic about what was going on. There was well, not a lot only of, that, but they feel like the world is going to end. Yeah, it's all very dramatic. They, they're, they're, it's, it's life or death, and they're demonstrating their loyalty. In everything that they do, you know, if, and they're being, I mean, they're getting national attention, global mm-hmm. attention. And so in, in a kind of a twisted way, that's really validating. Yes. And, um, he had said there was one thing, if I could find the right tab again, there was something he said that kind of gave, it was just telling of the whole, Darn it. He referred to the world as being ripened for sin, that that was the environment that they were in, that he felt that the world was being ripened for sin. Maybe it's when he was talking about Phoebe's death. Well, and I think it's interesting that he describes the wicked as sort of these government outsiders, right? Yes, yes. That's, I mean, and and that was a pretty common theme um, because... The whole persecution, the killing of Joseph Smith, was all viewed as the U.S. government in a in a pretty broad stroke, and pushing them out of Missouri. That's the government, and so it's pretty easy for them to come away with this picture of Uncle Sam being the bad guy, and and there was the doctrine of the there was a prophecy put out that that the Civil War was retribution for the way that they had been treated. I think they talk, I think um, Van Wagner mentions it in uh, Mormon Polygamy, but the Civil War was retribution for the way the saints had been treated and that that war was going to bring the U.S. to its knees. And so they definitely viewed themselves as being separate and above. And in a way, I mean, that's so, that's really romantic, right? It's this idea, especially if you're living this higher law, I mean, it really sort of pedestalizes marriage in a way that I don't think a lot of people in our contemporary viewpoint can understand it. I think Mormons can understand it a little bit, you know, because we do have this worship of marriage. But uh, definitely at this time, when you are actually being prosecuted for your marriage, for your relationship, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's difficult and it's challenging, but it's in a way it's very romantic. Yeah, it's you and me against the world, you know, and, and, and we will be on the right hand of God when we're done, you know, so, and, and him, you know, and, and they both talk to each, about each other in such high tones, you know, Phoebe and Wilford, him yeah. hoping that's all he wants to do is to be a good enough man to be back with her in the celestial kingdom. So. Interesting. Well, I really appreciate you looking at her life like this and telling her story because it's important to remember that there were women who were really devoted to this, to this faith. And she was a woman of faith and she expressed that with her choices over and over and over again. And in a way she's the sort of, you know, quintessential Mormon pioneer woman. Yeah. With, I mean, yeah, she is in with some, you know, just the stalwart, stoic, um, Mormon pioneer woman. Yeah. From Pilgrim Stock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thanks again, Corey. Uh, Corey's going to come back. She's going to give us more stories of these women, so I really appreciate her. And you can uh, contact her on Facebook or leave a comment in the comment section at feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. Thanks, Corey. 
thanks and we'll 